This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're looking this morning at verses 8 through 11. Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. It's page 1017 in the Pew Bibles. While you're turning there, I do want to remind you we're not having any uh, activities or evening service tonight due to the Memorial Day holiday. Although if you want to drive over and sit in the parking lot and pray, I would have no objection. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of God. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study your word now, that you would assist us to understand it. Father, we recognize these things are discerned and understood only by your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray for his light in this time in your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Proverbs 26, 13, from which those words come, is telling us this. For the sluggard, that uh, person we often encounter in the book of Proverbs, for the sluggard, the lazy person, when there's something that he doesn't want to do in his laziness, any excuse will do, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how outlandish, no matter how much a small risk is taken and exaggerated, any excuse will do. A lion in the streets, indeed. But you know, if we take the words of the sluggard and examine them on a deeper level, certainly a level the sluggard himself does not intend, but just to take his words at face value and think about them on a little deeper level. You know something? The sluggard is absolutely right. There is a lion in the streets, a hungry lion, a ravenous lion, prowling lion, a lion on the hunt, a lion looking for someone to eat. And it's that lion that Peter talks about here in the verses that we are looking at this morning. 
Peter, as we've seen, has uh, challenged the elders of the church to shepherd and protect and watch over the flock that is in their charge, a, a flock for whom they are accountable before God. And then he goes on to speak of how all of us, whether church member, deacon, elder, whoever it might be, are to humble ourselves before one another and have a posture of humility toward one another as well as to the Lord. And then that leads Peter to remind us in watching over the flock and submitting to the leadership of the church and submitting to one another that one of the reasons we do so is because we live in dangerous territory, because there is an enemy that is after us and would like to destroy us. And Peter uses the image of a roaring lion to depict that enemy before us here. So as we look at these verses, there are four things that Peter wants to tell us about that we need to keep in mind. First of all, we do need to remember that we have an enemy to beware. An enemy to beware. Because sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, everything's good. We're at peace. My life is just rolling along. Um, Maybe some bumps, nothing I can't handle. Peter says, remember that you have someone out there looking to destroy you. Now, let's think of that strictly in human terms. Suppose you knew there was another human being out there who had you in the crosshairs, was looking for you with the purpose of killing you. Would you not live a little bit differently than you would live if that were not the case? Of course you would. Well, that's what Peter is saying here, that our enemy is like, is not literally a roaring lion, but is like a roaring lion. And look at what he says. This is verse 8. Your adversary, your opponent, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. That's a very vivid image, and he wants to be. He means it to be. Think of a lion, fierce beast to begin with. This lion is roaring. I can remember growing up in my hometown at a zoo. Emperor Park and Zoo, and uh, in my earlier years, where we lived was was not exactly close to the zoo, although I could ride there on my bicycle. But I can remember being at my home, hearing the lion roar, even from that distance. It was a fierce sound. And that's what Peter says. The lion is, is roaring. He's making himself known. He's, he's feeling strong. He's showing his might. He's pleased with himself. The lion is roaring. He's prowling around. This lion is on the move. The idea here is he's active. He's aggressive. He's searching. He's looking. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Now, we would think of a lion literally devouring someone, eating someone up. Well, Satan is not literally looking, or his demons, looking to eat you literally, but to devour you, to consume you. How? Well, as we look at this passage in its context, Peter writes to Christians who are surrounded by opponents, by enemies, people who are opposed to them, people who either would like to get them to compromise their faith or to put them to death. We'd like them to go away, basically, one way or the other, blend in or be done away with. 
And as you look at the scriptures, you can see some of the ways that Satan attempts to devour. We think, for example, his earliest effort, and successful, by the way, uh, Genesis 3, where he comes in the form of the serpent to Adam and Eve and leads them away from their confidence in God's word, from their obedience to God's word, to sin against God, to become an opponent of God, to side with the devil. Think of another example of that we find in Job 1, which we read earlier, where the Lord actually commends Job to Satan, and Satan says, well, of course, you know, he's got it great. You've blessed him, you protect him, life is good, why shouldn't he praise you? You let me have Adam, you turn against him, and you see how quickly he curses you to your face. And the Lord gives Satan the opportunity to make Job's life miserable. Hard, painful, and yet we also notice that the Lord does set limits. You can't touch him. And later the Lord extends that. You can touch Job, but you can't kill him to make Job's life miserable, to test him. So that's another example that we see. Matthew 4 uh, is another place where Satan himself shows up to tempt the Lord Jesus. After Jesus is forty uh, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to him and says, Make these stones become bread. You can do it, son of God. I know you're hungry. Okay. Look out over all of these, uh, all these kingdoms of the world. There's no need to go through the cross to win these back. You just, just bow down and worship me, and we'll, we'll make a deal. You can have them. Just bow down and worship me. In t- tempting Jesus, trying to get Jesus to betray who he was as the Messiah, trying to get Jesus to side with, the, with Satan against his father, trying to get Jesus to sin, turn against the Lord. One other case, uh, Revelation chapter 12, um, in, in sort of a parabolic form, parable form, uh, and I'm going to read this just because it may not be as familiar, uh, but again, Satan looking for someone to devour uh, Revelation 12.1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan trying to devour the church, trying to destroy Jesus, trying to devour the church. That's what he does. The devil wants to destroy. He wants to destroy Christians uh, and he wants to get them to assimilate back into the world. Not to believe the word of God, to curse God to his face, to look to Satan for relief, not to trust in the Lord and in the word of the Lord, and then his desire to, de- to devour, to destroy the church. And so how do we respond to that? If we have this enemy to beware of, he tells us, uh, notice in verse 8, he says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. It's the word that means you're not drunk. You're sober. You're thinking clearly. You're perceiving clearly. You're steady. You're stable. We need to have that. 
because we have an enemy out there. If you had some human being pursuing you, you would be very alert, you'd be very attentive, you would be very deliberate. That's the idea of the word here. Not to forget that we have an enemy out there. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. That's a word that occurs a great deal in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, where Jesus says, watch and wait with me in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, be awake, watch for the coming of the Lord. The word occurs a number of times. Interestingly, um, it's the word from which the name Gregory comes. Gregoreo, I watch, I remain awake. Uh, so if, if you know someone named Gregory, their name means watchful or alert. Uh, but that's the idea, to be alert, not to, not to be like the disciples there in the garden and just to slumber while Jesus prayed that night before his crucifixion, but to be awake, to be alert, to be watchful, to be on guard. He also says in verse 9, resist him. The idea has to do with standing, standing against, standing firm. Did you notice when we read Ephesians 6 how often uh, that word occurs? It occurs several times to, to, to withstand the devil, having done everything to stand firm. Therefore, stand over and over. To resist him doesn't mean we go out actively looking for fights with him, but it does mean that we stand our ground that we withstand, uh, that we're able not to be moved. Why? Because the last thing he says in verse 9 there, firm in your faith, not wavering. Firm in our faith that obedience to the Lord is better than the pleasures of sin. Temporary, passing pleasures, I would add. That obedience always brings joy, where disobedience always brings remorse and ultimately death. Sin promises something other than it delivers. It promises life. It gives death. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith that faithfulness to Christ is worth even death. That takes faith. It takes faith when your life is on the line to believe that to die for Christ is better than to live having betrayed him in this world. That takes faith. Firm in your faith. So these four responses to this enemy he mentions... Uh, that we are to be sober-minded, we're to be watchful, we're to resist him, we're to be firm in our faith. So that's the first thing that he has to say to us here, that we have an enemy out there, that we need to be aware of him, and we need to oppose him in the ways, and and deal with him in the ways that, that Peter mentions here. We don't need to be asleep. Satan would like nothing better then uh, that we don't pay him any attention, that we maybe, like many people, don't even think he's real, just a metaphor for evil. Oh, no. Scriptures portray him as, as quite uh, real, as having uh, his own personality. Um, perhaps Satan himself would not go after you, but he certainly has plenty of those who are with him, the demons, uh, and certainly has our own fallen nature that would be happy to cooperate with him, kind of the enemy within so the first thing is to be aware of this enemy, an enemy to beware, like a roaring lion, fierce enemy. The second thing that Peter wants to teach us here is that we have a brotherhood we need to remember. We have a brotherhood that we need to remember. Look again at verse 9. He says, resist him, firming your faith, knowing, in other words, remembering, being aware of, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Peter's particular idea here of Satan's efforts to devour the church have to do with persecution, with suffering at the hands of unbelievers. 
And that may involve violent persecution, but it certainly doesn't have to. It might involve uh, economic oppression through uh, people, non-believers, refusing to hire people they know to be Christians, uh, or through Christians not receiving uh, work or customers from those who know they're Christians, therefore will not uh, will not uh, go to their place of business, whatever it might be, or shunning them socially. It can take all kinds of forms, but Peter sees that as Satan's efforts to discourage and ultimately to destroy the church. But notice what he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The same kinds of suffering. You know, one of Satan's greatest tools against you is to make you think you're alone. To make you think whether it's suffering persecution of some sort or whether it's dealing with some sin in your life or whether it's facing some discouragement that has come upon you, that you're alone. That this is something new or something unique that no one has ever known. That everyone else, all the other Christians have it together and you alone are suffering in this way. Isolation can be a powerful thing. Sometimes why prisoners are put in solitary confinement as punishment. That's why sometimes prisoners of war are put in solitary confinement in an effort to break their will in an effort to play with their minds. Because you see, there's strength in numbers. There's encouragement. There's reinforcement. And if Satan can make you feel alone, can make you feel isolated, can separate you, then he has a huge advantage. And that's why Peter says, remember that the things you endure are also being endured by this brotherhood throughout the world. The same kinds of suffering, the same suffering in dealing with temptation, dealing with sin, as well as dealing with whatever persecution the world might throw at you. It's not unique. You're not alone. The same kinds of suffering. But also notice what he says is that they are being experienced by your brotherhood. He uses that. That's a good translation of the word. It's related to the word uh, for brother, Adelphos, like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's that word, Adelphos, a form of it, but it indicates a brotherhood, a group of brothers and sisters together, uh, the, the body of Christ. He reminds us, using that interesting word, that it's not just as other believers out there, but we're a brotherhood. We're, we're interconnected. We're united in one common Savior. In being the body of Christ, which, yes, exists in one place, but exists in many places. In other congregations, other believers in other places, whether here or around the world, uh, while they are separate from us by geography, are nevertheless part of us in Christ. And they are throughout the world. Um, we're not alone. You know, it is helpful sometimes. I mentioned recently... Uh, going into my church library when I was growing up and finding Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a pretty hair-raising book. Uh, it picks up with uh, how how church tradition uh, tells us that the apostles died, uh, those we don't know about, you know, that the Bible doesn't tell us about, but uh, church history gives us some pretty reasonable ideas as to how they may have died. But then also it picks up with church history and on up to the days of John Fox, uh, which was several centuries ago when he, he was around, um, and just describes Christians who were faithful 
even to the point of death. Uh, there's also a great book by uh, Jock Purvis, uh, Fair Sunshine, which tells of the faithfulness of the Scottish Covenanters uh, being persecuted by those who claim to be Christians, interestingly enough, persecuted by the church, or what posed as the church. Um, more recently, think of um, uh, Elizabeth Elliot's book, Through Gates of Splendor, which tells of the efforts of her husband Jim Elliot at the time and, and others to reach the Alca Indians in Ecuador with the gospel and their martyrdom. Um, but even today, there are Christians who are standing against persecution, even to the point of death. Uh, and certainly Christians around us who suffer one degree uh, of of persecution or another, or suffer in dealing with various sins or the effects of sins in their lives. But Peter's whole point here is we're not alone. What you endure is not unique. Remember that. Be encouraged by that. Don't let Satan put you in solitary confinement, so to speak, and make you think somehow you're all by yourself. You're not. And that's the point that he is saying here, knowing these things, remembering that the, the same things you're enduring are being, being uh, endured by other believers as well. And that's to strengthen and encourage us. Now, third thing he wants us to remember, not just that there's an enemy to beware, not just that there is a brotherhood to remember, but third, that there is uh, help to anticipate that God himself doesn't just leave us to fend for ourselves. Look at verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, notice, he says, after you have suffered a little while. Very often, that is the case. Even in the first century, uh, persecutions, even the most fierce, were a relatively sporadic, occasional kind of outburst. It wasn't that it was just going on all the time. Sometimes it was local. Sometimes it was Roman policy. But um, but it was always temporary. It may have seemed to last all too long, but it did eventually come to an end. But I think Peter is saying something even bigger than that, though. That we suffer here for a little while. I think he's speaking in terms of the return of Christ. You know, just like they can speak of the return of Christ being near because that is the next event in redemptive history that we're waiting for, you know, that we are in the last days between Christ's first and second coming. Well, he can speak of this being a short while. And certainly in scope of eternity, our lives are a short while. Uh, but it is true in God's mercy that often just in terms of this life, persecution may continue only for a short while. After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He reminds us of the character of God, of God's grace. He reminds us of God's calling for us to glory in Christ. Christ, the one who, yes, was humbled and submitted himself even to death, that he might enjoy the crown of his glory. That pattern, as we've talked about, he reminds us of that. God is gracious. God has called us to eternal glory in Christ. We need to remember that when we're suffering here, whatever kind of suffering it is. Notice what he'll do. He will himself, God himself, our Father in heaven, restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. You see, this is the help that he gives, to restore. It means to put right, to make right. In Matthew 4, 
when Jesus encountered James and John, the sons of Zebedee, mending, repairing their nets. That's the word that's used. It means to make right, to repair, to put right, to restore. He will confirm you, make you firm and unchanging in your attitude and your belief. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. The word establish has to do with a foundation. Remember back in chapter 2, he spoke of us being a spiritual house in Christ Jesus. Well, God will make us like a house standing on a firm foundation. Foundation, of course, is Christ. But he's saying here that we are established. We're like a house on a good foundation. We're not going to be moved. We're not going anywhere. We're not going to sink. Um, but we are standing on the rock that is Christ. And so we can anticipate this help. It comes in this life. You think reading Fox's Book of Martyrs or reading of the Covenanters, the Scottish Covenanters in Fair Sunshine, thought, and perhaps you've had this, if you've read something like that, I know I have, is if I were there, if I were that man, if I were that woman, could I have stood in that way? But you know, the truth is God gives grace to deal with the need at hand. And I trust if, if I were in that situation that God would give me grace, he would strengthen my faith, he would confirm me in my convictions to the point where I would, by his grace, be able to stand. Believing that to die for Christ is better than to live without Christ. That to die professing Christ is better than to live having denied Christ. Did he forgive? Yes, Peter was forgiven. But one of the earliest problems the church had to deal with was what to do with Christians who renounced their faith in order to survive, only to come back and say, we won't back in. But we have this help, and we can anticipate this help. And then finally, the last thing in verse 11, not just an enemy to beware of, not just a brotherhood to remember, and not just help to anticipate, but in verse 11, a truth to remember. When life seems out of control, when things are crazy, when people are behaving in all sorts of strange ways toward you, something to remember, verse 11, and that is, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is an ascription. It is ascribing something to the Lord. It's a word you encounter in the Psalms. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Well, that's what's happening here. Peter does that. To ascribe means to credit toward, to, 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 to credit God with dominion, to acknowledge his dominion. It is an ascription, but it's also the reality. The reason we ascribe dominion to the Lord is because dominion is his. And that's what Peter is doing here. To him be the dominion forever and ever. It's not just a wishful thought. Oh, if only Jesus were in control. It's acknowledging the reality that the Lord is in control. That dominion, kratos, power, might, is his. It's the same word that occurs as an adjective back in verse 6. Under the mighty hand, the dominion, the reigning, the mighty hand of God. In fact, there's a form of this word. Kratos means might or power. There's a form of it. Pantocrator, almighty, all-powerful, that occurs in the Scriptures. It occurs in ten verses in the New Testament. One of them is in 2 Corinthians. The other nine are all 
in Revelation. Why do you suppose that is? I think it's because Revelation is writing to a church suffering. Revelation portrays both the suffering of the church here in this world, but the fact that God is in control and God is bringing it all to a glorious end for his people. That Christ has won the victory, that God is sovereign even over their sufferings, and he will bring his people through it to glory and blessing and joy with Christ. And so that word almighty occurs nine times in the book of Revelation just to emphasize the point that God is in control. That we can trust to him our suffering. That we can trust to him our temptations and struggles against sin. That we can trust to him our persecution. We need to remember that. That is a truth to remember, a truth to keep in mind that to him be the dominion forever and ever. Yes, Satan may be a roaring lion out there, but our King, our Lord, our Savior is the Almighty One, the One who made lions, the One who rules over lions, the One who draws the boundaries for what lions can do. Now, you don't want to be the sluggard trying to get out of what you ought to be doing by saying there's a lion in the streets. But you do want to be wise as you go about your day-to-day activities, your work, your school, your play, whatever it might be. Never forget. There is a lion in the streets, but there's also a king on the throne. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are on the throne, that you reign, that there's nothing that happens to us apart from your power, and that you have placed limits. Lord, as you did with Job, you have placed limits on what Satan can do to us, and those limits may allow him even to see us physically destroyed in this world, but not your church as a whole. Your church will remain, even though a member or two or many may be removed from this world through the violence of those who hate you. But Lord... Whether we live or die, give us faith to live for you. Give us faith to die for you. Increase our faith, Lord. We do pray that you would help us be firm in our faith, that you will restore us, that you will confirm us, that you will strengthen us and establish us, Lord, and that that those things would be done completely and ultimately on that day when our Lord Jesus returns, that day when we are acknowledged before all creation to be your children and to belong to you. Father, keep us faithful, obedient, joyful, humble, hopeful, confident in Christ. Come what may, we pray it in his name and to his glory, who suffered far more for us than we ever will for him, that we might share in his glory. Amen.